Pod is a ministry of Grace Church Greenwich. For more resources to help you get to know God better through his word, including bite-sized theology and answers to big questions, do check out www.greenwich.church. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to GracePod. We are carrying on looking at Mark and this time we're in chapter 2 all the way to chapter 3 verse 6 and we've got a a section all about, well what's it about Andrew? (laughs) Well it's about being very grumpy, just to say the least. I mean it's about the Pharisees going from being a bit unsure about Jesus to wanting to kill him and it's a sort of downward spiral of anger and resistance. So we've got five episodes and they seem unrelated and then when you read it closely they've all got the same pantomime baddie so you've got the um <laughs> well it's... Pick, pick your, i mean you're the marvel universe or disney king i mean it makes you think of you imagine the music's going to be sort of bass double basses and cellos and they're going to be wearing sinister outfits but i mean actually in their day jesus has a lot of criticism of the pharisees i guess that's why we think they're bad and yeah, they are bad but they would have been thought of as being respectable, and maybe that's Mark's starting point. And, and and as we go, we'll notice they get increasingly more sinister. So let, let's give them the benefit of the doubt as we begin, and then see how it unfolds. So, um, so in every episode, it as you say, it looks like different things. An argument about forgiveness, an argument about who you have dinner with, a discussion about fasting, a discussion about the Sabbath. It's all different things, but they've all got the same shapes. In every case, Jesus does something or the disciples do something. They object and then Jesus reveals something about himself. And if only they'd understood this about himself, then their objection looks silly. Yeah, that's it. So the first one we kick off with is um, uh, a scene that we actually did at the end of last week about the paralytic being uh, lowered into the room. And they come up with this question... Um, Jesus says your sins are forgiven. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins? It's, and on the face of it, it's a good question. And I think we can't, we're not grumpy with them at this stage. They've got it right. Um, it is a um, something that um, one of God's um, uh, privileges to uh, to forgive sins. And you and you see how I mean it's the classic illustration. But if I were to say to you. Oh, Andrew, I forgive you for the argument you had with your daughter. You're like, well, it's become some sort of high priestly thing. I mean, who are you to decide that I am forgiven by somebody else that I wronged? But obviously God can do that. Yeah, yeah. And then it's an opportunity for for Jesus to, to educate them and us well, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, and then he does the miracle to prove it. So we, we learn, as in Jesus' light, is able to shine even more brightly as a as a result of this questioning, and he's able to show his authority. It, it helps me to think: what would a reasonable person at this point do? So, like you say, there's nothing to have questions about someone going around handing out forgiveness. Fair enough, but what would a reasonable person do at the point that they see this paralysed man walking down the street with his mat? You go, oh my goodness! You know, God has visited us. This, this is the the promised Messiah of Daniel chapter seven and at that point you go jesus you know we had our questions but now can we follow you that that would be a reasonable reaction and especially because that's what the other people who see it do verse 12 they're all amazed they glorify god we never saw anything like this and and that's the sort of the foil for their bad reaction 
But instead of cheering up, they just get a bit more grumpy. They double down. And again, the second the second gripe they've got is not an unreasonable one. So um, Jesus is, has gathered together um, Levi, who's just become one of his disciples, and some of Levi's friends who are tax collectors and sinners. And we're not to read upstanding members of the Inland Revenue. I mean, tax collectors in those days were hated because they were Jews working for the Romans. And, you know, basically... Like like the way that the French who got in with the Nazis were regarded. You know, it's the sort of, you, you've betrayed your own people, you've got in with the occupying force. So they were despised. Sinners, prostitutes, you know, all, all sorts of people on the fringe of society. And Jesus hangs out with them and people are a bit surprised, which, again, is not unreasonable. Like if, you know, if people discovered that we spend our weekends in the red light district, like, what are you doing? What's going on? Why, why is our pastor keeping company like that? So... It's a fair question, but an even better answer from Jesus. And and he says, those who have who are well have no need of a doctor, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So he says, <clears throat> it's entirely natural if you are a sin doctor that you're around people who need help. And that explains why the pastor's in the red light districts, because he's doing a, a sexual health clinic. Yeah. So again, a reasonable person at this point thinks, oh, I have my questions, Jesus, but wow, what a great answer. You know, I'll I'll pray for you in your ministry to sinners, but they don't. And the pattern each time of a reasonable person would move towards Jesus, but they move away from Jesus. I I listed this a few years ago by making a Phariseeometer, which is basically a big dial with an arrow on it that went from reasonable to pig-headed to murderously insane. And, you know, it starts reasonable but the needle's starting to shift. Like, come on, guys, lighten up a bit. You had your questions, but, you know, see what Jesus is saying. This is a unique moment in history. Don't miss out on it. But instead, if anything, they start to get more picky or more pedantic. Yeah, so the next one is um, John the Baptist. His disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting. And they say, well, what's going on with Jesus's disciples they they don't do the same as us and the fact they've got john the baptist on their side is a kind of you know and we know that he's a true prophet so have they got a good point and jesus says well yeah i'm not anti-fasting but you've misunderstood the time we're living in can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them and this actually maps onto the old testament doesn't it because people fasted particularly to ask god to deliver them to rescue them and they regarded themselves as in a time of continuing exile, because even though they're back in the land of Israel, and they're not free and they don't own the land. The Romans are occupying it. So they're kind of praying for another exodus. They're praying that God would show up and deliver them. And Jesus like, I ha- God has shown up. So the promise of Isaiah was, you know, the exile ends when God himself comes as a bridegroom to his people to gather his people as, as a... What's the what's the line in Isaiah? As the bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so the Lord rejoices over you. Yeah, Isaiah sixty two, and we've got the um, uh, the kind of Hosea in the background as well. Hosea chapter two, where the Lord is like a bridegroom to his people. So, it's an amazing claim Jesus making. You know, don't. On the one hand, it's just an obvious thing: don't fast at weddings. Weddings are time for feasting. But there's an Old Testament background to this saying. I am the Lord come to marry, come to be in a relationship with his people. This is a time of rejoicing. And then this little hint that there will be a time of fasting. The um, days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. That sounds sinister. And we know where it's headed. 
And that goes with this little slight change. So you've got these episodes, one, two, three, and then a little pause where Jesus tells a parable um, about cloth and wineskins. Um, I'll just read it and then we'll try and unravel the riddle of what Jesus is saying. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. The wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So it, both of these little episodes are about something new and something old. And if you don't take account that the new thing is new, then there's destruction. Either your clothes rip because part of it shrinks more than others in the wash, or the wineskins burst because it's not flexible enough, you know. Um, for, for wine that's fermenting an extra fizzy and there's not enough stretch in the wine skin. But something new that if you don't deal with it properly, there's destruction. What what does he mean? What is the new thing? So sometimes people say the old thing is the Old Testament law and the new thing is Jesus. What is the new and the old? Well, I think he's, he's talking about a, a timing with the bridegroom arriving. So it seems the most obvious... Um, thing is the the arrival of the kingdom in mark 1 15 the king has arrived and at this stage um i think jesus is saying uh look you, you you're good with your questions um but let me just warn you because you're gonna that disaster is um gonna come if you don't adjust for the reality that that something new and glorious mm. has just arrived hmm. and the it's interesting the destruction in jesus two illustrations is it's the old thing that is destroyed so the the tear the garment is torn away is or the or the what the old wineskins are burst and then in the last illustration the wine is destroyed and so are the skins so the the new thing and the old thing is destroyed and i think that's it's a it's really interesting well why don't i leave it actually because it's we'll come back to that just let's lodge that for now there'll be destruction on you the wineskins, if you're not going to adjust, there's destruction to the wine as well. What does he mean? We'll, we'll just pause that because we'll come back to it. Okay, so we're three episodes in and then one warning. Steady on, guys. This is not going in the right direction here. So what they ought to be doing at this point, again, what would a reasonable Pharisee do? They'd think, okay, I, I've been a bit stuck in my ways. Um, Jesus points a good one. You know, new things require us just to adjust a bit. And wow, this is something really new. The Messiah's come. The bridegroom's come, the sin doctor's here, the, the son of man with authority to forgive sins. And this is a good time to become a Christian and start following him. But if anything, they go for the pettiest of all grumbles now. So the disciples are walking through a grain field <laughs> and they pluck heads of corn. Um, and it's a sort of, um, it, it tells you a little bit about their mentality. So they, 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 in a sense, you could say they love God's law because God says you, you're to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. But we can kind of instinctively see, I mean, this is way beyond anything the Old Testament would have said would, would have been breaking the Sabbath. We did a spot the difference once on this where we had a picture of, uh, you know, the spot the difference pictures with tiny differences that the children have to find between two pictures. And we did one with someone snacking and the other one someone driving a combine harvester. So they can't even tell that these are not the same thing. You're harvesting. This is working. Um, uh, yeah, and and, and um, Jesus says, "Look, well, he, he could have answered in various different ways, um, and he goes. I think his answer is basically read the Bible biblically. So let the whole Bible um, con kind of constrain your reading of one bit of it. And so he goes for a bit where King David 
um, ends up um, entering the house of God and he's on the run. He's a refugee and he ends up eating some bread, which ordinarily you wouldn't eat. But because it was a, a desperate time, um, it was, you know, he did it. And, and I, the, the narrative suggests, well, you know, in desperate times, you, you, you need snacks. <laughs> Yeah. So when it's so when it says David did what was not lawful, I guess you know they would say, well, look, there's our point. Except they're not going to be criticizing King David because they recognize he's a great king. So it's not that Jesus is saying it's fine to set aside the law. He's just saying, has your very inflexible interpretation of the law really the right one? As in, is yeah, like you just said, what's ordinarily lawful? It's ordinarily you shouldn't work on the Sabbath, but have a snack. Um, ordinarily don't eat the bread, the bread of the presence, but if you're starving. And then he sums it up by saying the Sabbath was made for man, not made for the Sabbath, not man for the Sabbath. And what, what I found really helpful about that is it's not Jesus adjusting the goalposts or saying, you know, in the Old Testament was strict about the Sabbath law, but I tell you, be lax. He's actually saying what it was always intended to be. The Sabbath was made for man. So from the very creation week when God decided six days of work and one day off, that was for our good. If you've interpreted it in a way that isn't for your good, you've mis- you've misread it. And especially in the original context, they were slaves that never had a day off probably in their lives. And then they come out and God says, look, from now on, as my people, one in seven, you just rest. And if you've made something that was so beautiful into something, into a stick to beat people with, you've you definitely got it backwards. Um, <laughs> So they got the law wrong, and then for the fourth time, they got him wrong, because his little final punchline, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So not only is he recovering the true interpretation of, of God's law, but he is the master of it, the Lord of it. Um, and I mean, even the fact that he compares himself with, with the, the King David, it probably annoys them, doesn't he? Because they go, well, King David's allowed because he's royal, but who are you? Well, I'm royal. Yeah. Okay, so we're... We're four episodes in with a little warning after the third. We really ought to now, as a reasonable Pharisee, be turning to worship Jesus. But actually the fifth episode is in various ways different and worse. Should we pick out some of the ways in which they just, they've really crossed the line now? Yeah, so we've got into a sort of rhythm, which is he does something, they object, he answers. But this one, there's a change of rhythm. And um, rather than responding to Jesus' actions, Jesus is front foot. And he is basically trying to expose them. He's saying that you've already decided about me. You're trying to accuse me. And he's going to bring that out. And he turns the tables on them. And it's a very, very poignant... I mean, this this would have been a really... If you're acting it out, you, you can imagine the, the slow camera angles and the sort of the, hmm. the emotion of these scenes. Um, and then the, the climax of it, which is that he... he well, we're going to see he compares them to little pharaohs. Um, so do you want to talk us through what happens? So Jesus goes into a synagogue and someone's there with a withered hand. And they, like, as you say with the camera angle, they're watching to see whether Jesus would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Now, even that shows the perversity of it, doesn't it? Because let's see if he can do an amazing miracle that only God could do. Because if he does, well, we've got him. <laughs> I mean, it's so twisted. Yeah. Um, and so they've already decided their agenda. They want to accuse him. They're just looking for the excuse. And now Jesus has got a choice. So does he, you know, does he trigger their trap by hitting this guy or does he leave this guy unhealed? And then Jesus throws the question onto them. So come here 
a man with a withered hand, and he asked them the question, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm, to save life or to kill? And it's, it's a beautifully, or deliciously ambiguous question, because <laughs> yeah. it's, um, which, which direction is the gun being, you know, the finger being pointed at? Um, you're thinking I'm the baddie? Let's think who's really the baddie here. And actually the question, you can point it both ways, can't you? Because you can point it at Jesus. Is it better for me to do good or to do evil? You know, here's a guy who needs healing. I've got the power to heal him. Shouldn't I do that? That's a good thing to do. Would that be a bad thing to do on a Saturday? Um, So should I do good or evil? But then you can also turn the question to them. Shall you do good or shall you do evil on a Saturday? And this is the, the massive hypocrisy of it because they're objecting to Jesus doing a healing on a Saturday. But... They think nothing at the end of this episode of planning a murder on a on a Saturday. And one of the um, the Jesus is a much better Bible reader than them because one of the purposes of Sabbath, where it was had two kind of purposes. One in in the Ten Commandments. One is that you you take rest, and the other is that you give rest. So if you're a um, an owner of, you know, if you're an employer, or whatever, or if, even if you've got animals, you give the animals rest. So you take rest and you give rest. And he's saying, you know what is in line with the original purpose i'm i'm giving real uh, blessing and rest to this guy so i'm i'm actually in line with the whole purpose of sabbath right now and he puts the question to them and they say nothing and this is in such contrast because for for four episodes now they've raised questions about jesus he's been pleased to answer them you know the son of man has authority to forgive sins and then um the sin doctor comes for sinners that's why I'm with tax collectors and sinners and the um the bridegroom's here and the son of man is lord of the south he's answered all their questions and they will not answer his because of course they got no good answer there's there's no actual reason why they're obstinately objecting to Jesus apart from their pig-headedness and oh, as Jesus puts it their hardness of heart this is what you were saying they're they're pharaoh like yeah so back in the exodus um we get this repeated um, refrain about and Pharaoh, well, either his heart was hardened or he hardened his heart. Or God hardened or his heart. God hardened it sometimes, yeah. And um, and this is what we're discovering about these guys. And and Jesus' emotional response is he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And, and we get the a little in, insight into Jesus' um, emotional life that th- this is just he comes and he sees this reaction and he's just upset, grieved, angry about it. And it's Pharaoh-like because Pharaoh saw incredible amounts of evidence of God's power in the plagues, but refused to yield to the evidence. And that's that's the situation there. And it's not that they haven't got enough evidence to know about Jesus. They're not, um, it's not their minds aren't made up. In fact, ironically, the very evidence that does show them that he's the king is the evidence that they used to trigger the murder. So, you know, only the Son of Man can heal a man with a withered hand in a moment on a Saturday. And that's the thing that they used to take objection to. And I think one of the... Um, so chapter 3, verse 6, immediately they held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. We're only three chapters in. Like, this is... We've had this incredible entry. This is the king has come. This is the one God has promised. And then we see a, a beautiful uh, world of um, healing and um, driving out evil and forgiveness and, and just a little snapshot of what the kingdom would be like under this man. 
and then just straight away the perversity of the opposition what why would people um you know what causes this rage and spite it can only be just the the depravity of the human heart and so in this section where we've been learning about jesus now we're learning about the world i suppose about the Jesus is offering something beautiful and in the human reaction is something very ugly. And in a way, it it convinces you about Jesus all over again, doesn't it? Because um, I remember talking actually to a, a Jewish guy at university um, some couple of years ago, and probably four or five years ago, and his argument was, I don't think Jesus can be the Messiah because all of the experts who were there at the time didn't think he was. You know, which is not not an unreasonable reaction. He says, you know, the the rabbis and you know, they were they were more expert than I am, and they were there at the time and they saw Jesus. They got to cross examine him, and they weren't convinced. So maybe that puts a question mark over Jesus. And Mark's saying to us, you need to know a little bit about the opposition that they they don't have the integrity that you might have thought they did. And I think that gives us a, a help as well because we we see it in the twenty first century that the real experts, the PhDs. The people who run the theology academies, they say, oh, well, the fruits of modern scholarship have concluded, you know, the Bible's not true, Jesus was not who he claimed, or whatever it is. And and we can look at that and say, well, actually, we've seen it before and, and we wouldn't be surprised if it happened again, that people are not as rational as you real, as you think when Jesus is about it, it that no one can look at him in a detached way because his claims are so great. He He ends up either as a magnet or as you know, he's Marmite, he, he, people just detest him and want rid of him. And I suppose in a court, if this is a court case, I'm not saying you know, it isn't, but it, in some ways you're presenting the evidence for Jesus, then the other side, the prosecution or whatever, is presenting the evidence against Jesus, and then you get to cross-examine the hostile witness. You know, here, here are the people who are against Jesus, let's now test them. Or it turns out they're not credible. You know, we shouldn't go with their verdict, which which does, yeah, is that G- Jesus has opponents and he has friends, but the opponents are frauds. So put that all together, it's even more compelling reason to, to side with him. And then that last line, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus, how to destroy him. And it suddenly you remember the, the warning, the wineskins, the new wine, the wine will be destroyed, and so are the skins. And there's just a little hint there that, yes, you are going to end up destroying me, but you yourselves also will be destroyed. And I think the same verb comes up in Mark chapter 12 when in the parable of the, the tenants in the vineyard, and they kill the son. I think, yes, we've, you know, we've got rid of our problem. We've murdered the, the son of God. And Jesus says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy those tenants. So actually, Mark's gospel, we're on a collision course now. Jesus' destruction and then their destruction, ultimately. And we're only three chapters in. Yeah. Thank you for listening to GracePod. For more information about Grace Church Greenwich, visit www.greenwich.church.